I'm Greg Dollar Coleman. Welcome to Ellipses Thinking, a podcast dedicated to exploring the nature of the creative journey in process. If an ellipses builds the perfect bridge from where you've both been and are now to where you're next meant to be, then what intrigues me most lives in the spaces between those three tiny dots. I'll tell you something interesting. I then became, you know, as many, many kids of my generation did, obsessed. Star Wars, Star Wars figures, Star Wars collectibles, Star Wars stories. And I would get out my Star Wars figures, and here's what I would do, which is weird now that I look back on it, or or maybe entirely appropriate. I would not play Star Wars. I would play George Lucas. So I would say, okay, music, action. And I would turn on the, the thing, and then I'd bring out my Star Wars figures, and I would pretend that I was making Star Wars. And I and then things would go wrong and I would say, cut, and I would turn off the music and I would give my Star Wars figures direction as to what they had did wrong. So uh, I dreamed from the beginning, maybe less of being Han Solo and more of being George Lucas. As Bob Boniel shares in our conversation, that obsession for all things Star Wars was hardwired as a child, attending the original movie, its opening weekend, and subsequently every Saturday matinee with his mother for almost a half a year at the local cinema in Swansea, Massachusetts. A core memory which would remain seated but dormant for many years before Bob stepped into what has become a thrilling professional journey. Bob is an Emmy award-winning director, production designer, and producer. He has built a reputation for his implementation of extensive media and interactive features in his productions and installations. His interdisciplinary practice draws inspiration from traditional and groundbreaking storytelling conventions of theater, broadcast media, opera, visual art installation, and architecture. Most recently, Bob has been deploying and integrating new interactive technology and AI to elevate live concert production with tour designs for Billy Joel, Blake Shelton, Megan Thee Stallion, and the One Night Houston Festival. It seems that Bob finds joy in every stage of the creative process and has since realizing early in his professional theater career that with or without an actual building, the experience of theatre exists everywhere and in all our storytelling. Over the course of his career, Bob has worked from Broadway to Beijing, helping clients including Disney, Marvel Studios and Lucasfilm gather and dazzle audiences from curtain up to standing ovation. Just as Bob once played at the role of George Lucas, a genius at creating a whole world picture through his storytelling, Bob himself has come to set and expect Lucas-level standards in his own commitment to creating richly layered and fully realized experiences that invite audiences to enter a creative space with their own imaginations firing on all cylinders. Uh, Bob, when we first spoke, um, I shared that I had been watching your creative process and, and your thinking from... Uh, from the sidelines uh, through posts and newsletters and uh, and images that capture, I suspect at best, just a hint of the magical world that you inhabit and, and the magical worlds that you get to create. 
if I'm being completely transparent, I arrive in my chair not not really knowing a whole lot about what has been and, and continues to be imagined into being and labeled the metaverse. Um, but not so long ago, I, I did happen to read one of your posts, and um, and it was on the subject of immersive production. And you passionately said, and I quote, "Without compelling programming, the metaverse is a dead mall. People need things to do." things they want to do, things they will actually show up to do. In other words, the metaverse needs theater. <laughs> I, I sensed a bit of a rant, but in truth, my curiosity was piqued. And as I watched you, as I was, as I was sharing that quote, I, I you know, things can change so quickly. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know how current that thought is, uh, or if it was just a moment, but what are you pressing us to consider and know and to do. We can create the most beautiful, embossed, carefully crafted leather cover for a book and bind the pages with all of the art and adhesion they should have. <laughs> but if we don't put words on them, I mean, well, then we've built, then we've built a venue, right? And and I think that I think that when we consider right now what I think most people conventionally think of as the metaverse, which is a digital online world somewhere, um, in particular, for instance, Facebook rebranded itself yeah. as Meta in a in a, a total commitment to the idea that maybe community was going to shift to an online immersive place. And there are many other platforms that, that, that you can discuss and talk about. But I think that uh, my analogy holds in that most of them were incidences of we will build it and they will come. Mm. But, you know, uh, if, if someone were going to ask me, why did Mark Zuckerberg's multi-billion dollar bet on building the metaverse not pan out mm. the way he wanted it to. I think I might say that they focused very hard on building technology and not really at all on building stories and reasons and giving this place a why. It's interesting because 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 that phrase and and I think you're right, we just now bandy it about. Uh, if we build it, they will come. But that that com that comes out of field of dreams, and and that movie invites us to 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 build a field. Sure, that's the venue, but but they won't come if there isn't an event. And that's what I'm hearing you say that that human story, uh, you know, told in nine innings in in that film in that story, but but in whatever whatever uh, conventional storytelling uh, manner, people like to enjoy things together. Like they like to gather together in groups and then they like to take in presentations, be part of story and phenomena and a sensory experience. We know this. We know this from theater and opera and concerts and theme parks and cruise ships and <laughs> all manner of weird things that people will gather together to do. And it turns out they will do it online too. And conventionally speaking, in a digital online world, they did it in places like World of Warcraft 
or, right. you know, online games were how this manifested at first. But if we would like to look at a, a at an incidence of success with an online experience uh, that is story-based or that is uh, experientially based, um, one might look at what uh, happened in the game world of Fortnite when a variety of performers, Lil Nas, Katy Perry, um, uh, Travis Scott, they appeared live in those places in a performative way, in yeah. different ways too, which was fascinating. You know, Travis Scott showed up as a thousand foot tall avatar and Katy <laughs> Perry showed up uh, as uh, appearing in a digital world she'd constructed in the real world and transporting that into into. Uh, Fortnite. So you saw the real Katie in a way, but in Fortnite, right. um, that's not relevant. But what they did is they showed up and then they did what they did, which is to perform, to sing songs, to to bring audiences together into an experience. They do this in the real world. They brought that to the virtual world and that audience, which will do that wherever those performers choose to show up, right. followed them. Right. And 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 there are there are other episodes of this as well, where theater or film compelling pieces of IP have showed up and they they have great success in this sort of platform because they are purveying what the people want, which is a reason to be there. Otherwise, yeah. it's a, it's an empty place. And I have to. uh I have to give some credit to the the dead mall uh, trope came from uh, uh, um, a man I admire quite a bit and whom I read a lot of and I've I've met a few times and his name is Cory Doctorow and he's uh, yeah. uh, he's a technologist and, a, and an author and a storyteller and an advocate for um, civil liberties in the digital world and and in the world of uh, equitable access to. Uh, intellectual property. Um, and I think that it was Corey who I heard say out loud uh, that the metaverse without, you know, the meta, that the, the metaverse without, without something to inhabit it is a dead mall. Um, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what an apt yeah. metaphor that was. And I, I guess what I, what I'm appreciating is your ability to acknowledge that there is lots of good examples in, in that world it it does make one wonder where the disconnect is for 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 there to be any dead malls i guess on the street corner in your neighborhood or in the street corner of the digital or virtual world as well so this gets us to this piece that i sense great passion uh, about which is story and uh i i've heard from you firsthand and from some people who know you that that story uh, has some of its origin in in something you and I share, which is a love of theater. Um, that, that I don't know. I don't want to put words into your mouth and, and ask if that's actually where it all began. But and again, the sense I get is that your career has been full of surprises, full of discoveries, and and calculated creative risks. But could you have imagined when you started out that you'd be sitting in the chair in the studio that you're in right now? And and how do you draw that line from your beginning? to to hear well a i'll just observe that when one is uh, a little bit later in one's career it can be easy to look back and see coherence mm. in that career 
Great point. And in fact, it, I feel like it was incident after incident of a meeting <laughs> of circumstances and luck and and uh, and what I arrived in that moment with, and you, they stacked up. And I and I and I guess those circumstances and and those things then led to a narrative, right? Um, look, when I was young, the circumstances of 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 my family life when I was a kid and how I grew up were were a little difficult. And I, I came from a fractured family and, you know, there was divorce involved and there were, there were many circumstances. And what all of them led to was a retreat for me into stories mm. as a kid. I was, an, you know, my mom, starting when I was, I think like five or six, she would have me read a page of the dictionary a night before I went to bed, um, <laughs> which I took to, oddly enough. I thought that words were like spells, were like magical things. Uh, and that if I learned more words, I would have, you know, I would have more power in a world where I kind of, as a kid, felt powerless. Right. But but they led but they led me to a love of language and a love of story. Like from that, from very early on, I read voraciously and I loved these worlds that I would conjure up in my mind from from reading. And it's funny. I remember I you know, my mother took me to see Star Wars the day it came out, opening day, the first matinee in the Swansea Mall Theater in Swansea, Massachusetts. Uh, I was there at the first showing. And then consequently, my mother and I went to see Star Wars some 20 times after that. Every weekend, my mom would say, what would you like to do this weekend? I'd say, let's go see Star Wars. So, And, it, and, it, and I think that was where I first, I didn't twig to the hero's journey, but this is where it was pounding me in the head night after night. But I'll tell you something interesting. I then became, you know, as many, many, kids of my generation did obsessed mm. with star wars star wars figures star wars collectibles star wars stories and i and i had the soundtrack album right and i would yeah, put it yeah. on on the record player and i would get out my star wars figures and here's what i would do which is weird now that i look back on it or or maybe entirely appropriate i would not play star wars i would play george lucas so i would say okay music action and i would turn on the the thing and then i'd bring up my star wars figures and i would pretend that i was making star wars not that i was being wow. and i and then things would go wrong and i would say cut and i would turn off the music and i would give my star wars figures direction as to what they had did wrong so uh, <laughs> i dreamed from the beginning maybe less of being han solo and more of being george lucas i think that one of the first things that occurred to me when i saw the movie was people made this yeah i just my mind was just blown but maybe what is more mind-blowing is that other humans made this so therefore there must be a way mm. that i could learn to make this now i filed that away and it, it drifted back into the subconscious i didn't then proceed forth with an intention to get into theater or cinema or anything i didn't know what i was going to do i didn't know what i you know when i ultimately got into school at first or university after uh you know high school i went for political science hmm. um and i and i you know i i i didn't like some people like you look back at like spielberg's story and he talks about oh i was trying to make movies from the time i was a little kid right i think i had stumbled into it and then stumbled out of it and and when i was in college 
my, you know, effectively I got a beer money job working in a local theater, which was Trinity Repertory in Providence, Rhode Island, which was a ridiculously vibrant and amazing wow. theater at that time in the mid 80s, right at the cusp of Adrian Hall leaving and Ann Bogart coming in. Can you wow. imagine that, <laughs> that, that, the A, that contrast between those artistic yeah. But B being able to be a young and impressionable kid yeah. who gets a who gets a job by accident, effectively, and then I and it didn't it took no time at all. I got that job. I got that job through dishonesty. You know, I lied to the head electrician. I told her, oh, I knew they needed a spotlight operator, and I thought, how difficult could that be? I had a very loose idea of what that meant. I was an awful spot operator. Uh, but but what happened was she was over a barrel. She didn't have any opportunity to vet me. So she hired me and then put up with me. Right. She then later, many, many years later, married me. <laughs> uh, so yes. so there's that part of the story. But we'll leave that for a different episode. But what happened was on that night, that very first night, when I was in a rehearsal with those actors from that company, and we were doing uh, we were doing tomfoolery, which is Tom Lehrer. Yeah, uh, music, which is which, which I had never encountered that either in my life. So I watched as these people sang Tom Lehrer's songs, which were were themselves revelatory in terms of like, oh my gosh, people like like this manner of political and cultural commentary exists musically. And and then I saw how the actors brought this together, and and the design of it came together. And then we then the magic alchemy happened mm. the next night when we added an audience, and and in that moment everything changed. Everything shifted. It's interesting because there was a, a quote that sort of surfaced up from me, uh, a visual artist, Laura Owens, who 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 wrote, "I don't believe." that there's such a thing as innate talent. It's about desires and passions that lead to a focus on certain things and seeing the world in a certain way. And I I just, I bring it in because it, it came up first when you were talking about, you know, seeing the world as Lucas, you became the Lucas uh, character. And again, hear this sense of, um, of being aware that something was in transition for you in terms of, uh, just what you were curious about and 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 that you yeah maybe right place right time and and obviously that's certainly got something to do with the story of of your of your marriage but as you look back from where you are standing at this moment what what desires and passions beyond a love of reading beyond an innate desire to to tell stories what were you what what can you now see were alive in you and 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 in what ways did they they lead you forward from that point I mean, some of this is deeply personal, you know, and I don't mind sharing it. You know, when I grew up, I, I had a very bad relationship with my stepfather. He he didn't, you know, he he would call me, he would, he would, he would basically, what it added up to was the message from my stepfather was, you're never going to amount to anything. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I think that hearing that and hearing that so frequently as a kid is such a beat down, uh, you know, and, and there were a few other, you know, that there were a few other incidences that happened to me where, you know, uh, something would happen and I was, I was asked to either be quiet or to, you know, uh, to back off and not take part of something. Maybe, I don't know. All mm. this added up to me, a fire burned in me. Mm. 
my late teen years to prove to the world that that I had value. And more than that, like I was driven to deliver a giant smackdown to the people mm. in my life who had doubted me um, and had doubted the potential I had. I think that a lot of people might relate to that. I think that yeah. a lot of people maybe have experienced things like that in their childhood. I don't necessarily think that's a productive energy to feel, you know, to to feel like I'm all right, I, I'll show you. But it was enough of an energy and there was enough of an intensity of it at in that starting point for whatever might have motivated it that it carried forward. And I did, and at first there was no form to it. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't. I kind of had an idea that I would study political science because I had worked in the political realm in high school. I'd worked as a page in the Rhode Island State House of Representatives. Uh, uh, I, I, some of my, you know, my best friend, his mother was the secretary to the mayor of our town. And I got government jobs from the very early, like I had, you know, I had a job at the city pool and then I got yeah. a job in the, in the school department's data processing center. And I got these jobs and look, I grew up in Rhode Island, which has a proud tradition of corrupt politics. So <laughs> you know, I had patronage jobs from the, from an early point, I got jobs from undue influence. Right. And, you know, I was a friend of the family, literally. Uh, so I thought, you know, maybe I thought in the beginning, the, you know, the, in the, the category of dreams and desires that I would find it in politics and that I would study political science and I would ascend and I would run for office at some point and hopefully remain unindicted. Um, <laughs> it was about as definite as that plan got. Um, but then with that epiphany, that that moment of of just complete shift when I found the theater, then I knew what that what I would do was. I would find the success in storytelling and in art and, and, and it, it took on more form, but maybe still not definite, you know, in the sense that I thought maybe I could go to Broadway, you know, I thought maybe I could act. I, I thought, you know, I didn't, I didn't see a lot of definition to it. And in college, I also got very into making video hmm. uh, and creating at that time music videos. So I also thought that that might be a way that I would go, that I would go into video and film. As it turned out, I did all of that, except the politics part. Um, you know, my, my practice now, if 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 you've ever been to one of my shows or you're familiar at all with my work, it's a deep mix of 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 cinema and of of media integrated into things that are fundamentally theatrical. Creativity has the power to take our breath away to move us to action or reaction, to invite us to feel more fully alive. And when the creativity is coming out of the kitchen of a local restaurant, the experience has the power to do all of the above and put a smile on your face. Q Burger in Qualicum Beach on Vancouver Island is home to culinary creativity led by owners Aaron and Kevin. Together they have managed to make a local burger joint a must-stop on any trip up the central coast of the island. In fact, readers of Canadian Living Magazine recently voted it one of the top five burger restaurants in Canada. And if you're saying, yeah, but a burger joint's a burger joint, 
Then let me ask you, what other burger joint allows you to choose between a Boomageddon, all caps, with double the beef, double the bacon, and double the cheese, and Wicked Sticky, where the roasted chicken breast is topped with balsamic reduction, roasted garlic, and fried brie, or the new Sonic Pickle Boomerito, yep, with an exclamation point. And if meat is not your treat, consider a Brock of Ages, the Thai Tuna Tornado Wrap, or Halibut and Chips caught fresh from the ocean 10 minutes down the street that morning. The fish, not the chips. Put it on your bucket list. Q Burger, locally owned and operated in Qualicum Beach, BC. But what I love just hearing that was to your point, it's easy at our age to look back, but thinking of a, a younger person hearing this and the pressure to choose the right path. And I, what I loved was you were you were curious about my path might go this way, this way, this way. But I wonder if in not locking in and choosing and, and saying this is it, you actually have been able to live an integrative, creative experience. I think that that is the case. I, I think that I think that my sort of uh, a professional vocational uh, uh, passion ADD has has given me a freedom to to experiment with and to be curious about things because that's another blessing about my career that I I wish I could tell you how exactly it happened but I find that it's unusual to 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 have somebody who works as a director and a production designer and works in opera musical theater concert touring broadcast and brand you know usually you're in one of those things right uh, and I've been very fortunate to have substantial work in all of them. Um, and and so, if I give you the secret to that, I, I would gladly share it. But uh, all well, can... to take a, a second because you raised it, and I think sometimes it's it, you're absolutely right. We we don't think about how it happened, but but if you just took a moment now to actually consider with the you know the benefit of the perspective that you now have. What what may have contributed to that? You used the word curiosity. I suspect the curious mind is a is a big piece of it. But what did you do now that you can look back that you can say that may have contributed to the person I am and the and the artist that I get to to be? A fundamental and core love of theater and an mm -hmm. idea that the definition of what a theater is and where theater can take place is pretty wide open. I think that's what's at the root of it. You know, I didn't see much distinction between an auto show and an opera necessarily. Wow. You know, all of them were about were about um, you know, communicating an outcome, an idea, a life, a moment, you know, a, a delivery mechanism. Uh, you know, all of them were about were about making a dream manifest and maybe creating some impulse in you or some connection in you to that dream and from that dream back to you. So, you know, whether it's me witnessing the inventory in Don Giovanni of all of his conquests, or it's me considering all the hot chicks my new Corvette might bring me into you know, proximity to, you know, some of these are the same tropes and the same things. In fact, they are very much what motivates people to buy things and collect things and aspire to lifestyles is very much at the root of it. The same thing 
that that pulls them towards stories and heroes and mythology and so i found a commonality to all yeah. of that you know a, a rock star is nothing if not you know an epic uh uh diva or leading man or protagonist right mm -hmm. the same can be can be said for you know i just i found a, a root in all of these things and that all of them were effectively theater and i think that this was something when i first got out of school and i and i at first i worked in musical theater and i worked on tour uh, as a lighting technician and I moved to New York City and I found some work on Broadway as a swing stage manager and then later as you know I found my way into uh, the you know the crew for Beauty and the Beast on Broadway but then what I also found when I moved to New York and this was where the the eye-opening moment happened was that I found work like working on fashion shows and lighting restaurants, like coming in and working with architects who wanted to light, you know, like they called in theatrical lighting people to, uh, to you know, make drama in the space, right? Yeah. And then I saw that theater was everywhere. Mm -hmm. The theater was in how we presented clothing to each other and theater was in creating the places we would gather to eat together and theater was uh was was in music i was finding jobs running lighting for you know brand new bands uh, wow. the beastie boys at the time right <laughs> and and that was oh my god that was profoundly theatrical their yeah. lyrics and their performance and that crowd and what happened in there was absolutely theater and yeah. so that that was the next epiphany I had. The first epiphany was, gosh, I love being in a communal space where stories are being told and where theater is happening. And I thought theater was it. And then I went to New York and discovered, oh, actually, theater is happening it's all everywhere. around me and in every context. And then when I left New York and I launched into my career, I never at thereafter chose to create boundaries for myself that, oh, I'm I'm going to you know, I, I, I believed and saw that theater was happening everywhere. And so I roamed. So when you hear all of that, I mean, that that's a pretty great answer to the question you said you didn't have an answer for about, you know, 10 minutes ago or five minutes ago that I'm hearing in that, if I can extrapolate, if, if all you can figure out is what makes you jazzed, if all you can really figure out, and I go back to the quote that, that the desire or passion that lives in you and then look at the world. And in your case, the ability to see theater everywhere meant all of a sudden one box with an audience on this side and the, and the performer on that. That just exploded into the possibilities that have allowed you so many lanes of, of, of inquiry, I guess, of, of, of excitement for you to be able to follow. I get the sense that it's really important that you that are able to communicate how you go about and the values you bring to creating theater anywhere, be it a rock concert uh, or 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 a, or as you say, an auto show, um, it's more than just hanging some lights and focusing them, right? It's more than just picking some stock imagery and video and throwing it up there. What? How do you tell your story? What are the values around your around your decision making process? Can you take me into that? Well, like once we set aside the idea that we start with story, of course, um, and that that story shows up in lyrics or it shows up in libretto or it shows up in uh, script or however that sh story shows up, you know, there's 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 a 
there's a story to be told underneath it. So for instance, right, very recently, uh, I've designed a, a an arena tour with with a good friend of mine, Steve Cohen, for Blake Shelton, who people may know as a as a very very big country performer. He's also a television star. He he's one of the has been one of the the judges on The Voice. Uh, so we designed this show for Blake, and and Blake asked us his remit at the very beginning was like I want to share an evening with my fans that feels incredibly intimate like it's just a bunch of us hanging out in a honky-tonk that I've actually set up in my barn you know and it's just me and my friends and we can all just talk to each other and we're you know we're in a place that makes us instantly comfortable it's a place that that is by its very existence uh, a temple to to the hoot nanny right um and to 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 people singing together and to to you know and to a particular kind of music too and so steve and i took that seed you know and we're like okay so a let's wrap this up let's give this some structure some structure of architecture and some structure of narrative we decided that we definitely uh, from a narrative sense, we want to find this place. We want to introduce the audience to the concept that we're going to go together to a space together, and we're going to bring out somebody. And we're going to put you into that space together, uh, and then you're going to have a collective experience, and you're going to know just what to do because there are going to be visual cues, architectural spatial cues, um, uh, psychological things that will happen, and song. And you're going to know just where you are and you're going to know how to feel and how to act because mm. this will be familiar. And we're going to take you on a journey that's going to that's going to involve celebration and thinking and and maybe some kissing and probably some drinking. Right. <laughs> because that's that's the nature of that thing. Um, so in that case, you know, Steve and I began with that that expression. This is what we're going to do. That's the journey we're going to craft. And then that suggested to us some very powerful things about architecture. One of the things, in as much as I use media in my work a lot, one of the things you might notice about my shows is I, I think that there are two ways to use big media in a show, like big projection or big LED screens or big manifestation of imagery. Right. that is conveyed digitally in shows, which is super common right now on Broadway. And it is the language of way the way concerts happen. But the two modalities I see are cinematic or scenic. And I think that most of what you see is cinematic. You okay. know, people, you go to a concert, you go to, you know, uh, you know, a concert with a prominent pop star you're likely to see things in those screens on stage that maybe feel like music videos conversely you might go to uh, a, a show like dear evan hansen or you might go to like any of these shows though the one i love to refer to which was like a just a, a, a another giant moment in my career where i could see what i wanted to do was tommy on broadway oh wow uh, and what Wendell Harrington, who was a projection designer on that show, along with uh, Batwin and Robin, Linda Batwin and Robin Silvestri, they created a psychological landscape that 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 the Who's rock opera happened in. You know, they didn't so much create the location as they created, you know, a visual representation of narrative psychology. 
uh, Wendell, I'm really sorry if I got that wrong and you can give me a call and let me know. <laughs> um, but uh, but I tend to stray towards the scenic because I, I just, I love architecture and I like to, you know, I'm also, I'm a big believer in leaving certain things to the mind's eye of the audience. Right. Uh, so I'm very, very careful about operating psychologically and uh, I will do it, but my tendency is instead to help create location. Right. So what we did with Blake was um, we created a physical production architecture that was lighting positions, for instance, that evoked a big roof over the arena, right? Like you'd see in a barn, like beams. and But instead, those beams were made from trusses that had lights on them but still we'd light all that up and you knew right away it felt like a roof right, right. and then we built another thing that felt like a proscenium like we might have in a honky-tonk to frame a stage to tell you here is the performance space right we also built a bar right down the middle of the entire arena <laughs> with bar stools and and uh you know and so blake would blake spent the whole show just wandering up and down the bar, singing to people and with people. Yeah. Um, and then we had a giant amount of LED screen at the back. But what we sought to do always was to never reveal to you that that was video, but that instead that was an additional 100 feet of depth on the stage. And so we would take that architecture we had created physically and we would continue it and augment it and build on it virtually so that yeah. it felt like, wow, it looks, there's a lot of, there's a lot of old neon signs up there or old bar ephemera and wooden beams and dramatic light, you know, volume editing that sort of revealed that mysteriously. But that lighting was, was tied in and thoughtfully integrated with the real production lighting. So again, the the idea was let's fool the audience into never quite understanding what's physical and what's virtual here. And then Steve and I sought to take them throughout the night on a journey through this space. So we would physically move items out in the production and at the same time move the virtual so that now we're going to move over to this corner or maybe now we're going to rise up into the attic of this mm. bar. We're going to find a different location for a song to play out. Maybe in that location, we do, we find a a secret art studio where Blake has been been paint making paintings, as yeah. you know, in 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 a tribute to his love, right? Uh, so that could be a, a trope and a way we would explore and support that particular song with Blake, right. and you, we could take that audience on this journey through the space over the course of a night. And we also, like in the beginning, when we first revealed it, we brought up just one light and another light. And we revealed at first what felt like a, a big wooded glade that we were moving slowly towards. And we could see a barn off in the distance. And we moved towards the barn and a big starry sky exposed itself. And that starry sky was extended by lighting effects out into the rig. And then the barn arrived and then then we were at the side. And then as we would in a theater, the entire side of the barn lifts. Yeah. Like it's the not. oleo drape at the front of the at the front of in one in a theater, you yeah. know, at the front of the stage and reveals the big interior yeah. of the barn. And we're brought in and we're in. Yeah. Really theatrical. And you know, and and we got that feedback from Blake, from his manager. Our Narvel Blackstock, who is an old school uh, Nashville country manager, 
you know, he he said, Anna Baba, this feels very theatrical. No, now look, Narvel is a very canny guy and he knows what audience like audiences like. And he, uh, he has a very deep understanding for how he wants his shows. And, you know, um, and yet Narvel, you know, I think Narvel was immediately attracted to the, to the coherence of the the thing that that it was. Talk to me about that coherence. It's something that you and I have talked about before, and maybe I'll, I'll just take it back a minute because we'll get to there. But I was curious, you, you used the image so clearly that it was the artist who brought the seed, who, who set the, who, who had the idea. I'm curious about the, in this case, Blake Shelton, but the artists journeying with you and your partner um, through the process and, and the iterations of development, um, and and what in in this case what what his role and I don't mean it. I, I mean it could be anybody. It, in this case, it's Blake. But what is that collaborative process for you like in this kind of an event? Well, I think it's like working with any other creative collaborator where you share ideas. You know, you come to a consensus about maybe an end point that you're all trying to get to or or a fundamental structure, a scaffold for a story that you're going to investigate together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and everybody arrives at the table at those times you gather at the table with material and context. And, you know, uh, I would I would absolutely say that we engage in a process on a show like Back to the Honky Tonk in every way just as much as we would on an opera or in a musical there's there's a dramaturgical process like a huge mm. thing for me i i don't spend a lot of time in honky tonks yeah. right? now i've been in a few honky tonks and i have toured the entire world and i make it a point to be a, a student and a participant in every kind of culture i can get my hands on i've been in country bars i've been in honky tonks i've been in backwoods you know, blues bars. So I I had some experiential context, but with every show I do and with with every, you know, installation I get involved with, I hunger for context. When when we got hired to create Chevrolet's auto show installations, you know, I got hired and I went into 90 days of deep immersion right away. I watched every movie about cars and about racing. I read the books about about Chevy and how the brand got started and the books about how Cadillac happened. And I wanted to know everything about General Motors. I read the histories of General Motors, the business studies of General Motors. I wanted to understand what the people I was going to work with, which were the leadership of General Motors, how they thought about their work and their cons- their audience, their mm. consumers, right? The same with Blake. I, I wanted to understand what is a honky-tonk experience? What What's it like to be at a hootenanny? Like what is, you know, what a... And and I had some experience myself, but I went out and sought other experience, and I watched movies, and I and I and I consumed books, and I read things, and I did a lot of, you know, and then I do what I call, you know, sort of my my a prototyping stage where I'll start to play with ideas. I'll start to, you know, sketch spaces. And and I have a lot of different tools. I do do that with everything from pencil and paper to 3D programs and game engines, which are used in other industries to make wholly different things. Computer games, I use game engines to make uh, simulations of, of, of performance spaces. And sometimes I even use them to make 
the actual content that becomes the right. parts of that. So I do prototyping in that. And, and most recently, I've begun to use generative artificial intelligence tools to help me to express, you know, what some people call mood boards, but I choose to call stylescapes, which are, you know, collections of visual media, auditory media, uh, written or, you know, I bring together big amounts of 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 inspiration and 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 you know suggestion that that then I can share with my collaborators and say these are where I'm starting from where are you starting from and then we we come to agreement around things and then we know what ideas we're going right. to take and develop so you're finding the language right which, yeah, which absolutely we, we have and, to and create our own and and as I just alluded to that's common between between, you know, whether I'm doing, you know, whether, you know, whether I'm doing uh, Parsifal or yeah. working with Pontiac or, you know, a country star. It's just lo lovely to hear uh, that sense of commitment to what is most important here. And you use the word dramaturgy. And I know to some to some people, that's that, that's a word that's outside of their their normal lexicon. But it's that, you know, that responsibility to understand the world of the play and or the or the world of the story. And if and and, and if Blake's understanding or whoever's understand Pontiac's understanding is different than yours, we're, we're not going to mesh. We're not going to create uh, something unified. Well, the people creating it need to have agreement on it. Right. But there, it, that context needs to be there. What people, I believe, one of the things that people seek to find in these communal episodes of entertainment or whatever we want to call theater, um, they seek to find connection. Hmm. Uh, they seek to find um, identification. I identify with that. I would like to be that. Oh, or I have been like that. Or, oh my gosh, I'm glad I saw that. And that's definitely not something. Yeah, there, but for the grace of God, go on. Yeah. Or, you know, they 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 want to see, they want to feel an affinity for other human experience and project themselves into it and it onto them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where they then they get taken for the ride, right? They get to be, you know, alongside the hero or the villain or the victim. Uh, you know, and they and they get to experience those things um, through empathy and through observance and through through sensory um, experience. Um, and that's the magic, right? We now we get to not just not just read the story. We get to be in the story. We get to kind of feel the story around us. And that you you earlier mentioned you know, and this is something I say out loud, so it's not a surprise that I've always sought to to destroy the fourth wall too. Right. I like to I like to bring the audience right in and give them agency, even in the ways that I can give them agency uh, to decide how they're going to get involved and maybe even the ways that they can contribute. But they need to want that sense of identification. They need to they need to feel that connection that comes through context, and mm. some of it might not even you know a uh, be explicit you know i remember i designed a production of nabucco for seattle opera and we had a q a afterward and someone asked me they said you know why did nabucco's throne room i didn't understand that giant frieze on the wall of of with of the horse and the horse's head and i said well 
I said, the reason for that is because Nebuchadnezzar, um, Nabucco, he had a relationship that some found to be very curious with his horse. Um, he, you know, uh, he had a relationship that one might say was materially as important to him as his marriage was his relationship with his horse. And the horse, you know, he would, he would actually, Nebuchadnezzar would actually seek the counsel or the intuition of his horse in making major governmental decisions. Wow. Uh, and the audience said, yeah, but I don't know that. So why did you put the horse up there? I said, you didn't need to know it because I knew it for you. Right. And I put the horse up there, which has led you to wonder, why the hell is that horse up there? And now you've asked me and now, you know, yeah. about this, this, this thing, um, you know, context can be explicit and literal, but also we create connection by creating curiosity and creating an impulse in the audience to find out more about things. And, and we can't, we can't ever get an audience there if we don't ourselves go through that process of yeah. understanding those things. Yeah. And, and I guess what I love about that is the reminder for us all that if you happen to go to the show on a night that doesn't have a talk back, it does not mean that your curiosity should simply be dismissed because somebody else isn't there to 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 do to to share the hard work that they've done but rather if you're curious about that which doesn't make sense stay in that curiosity because that individual is fully capable of finding out what or at least some possible answers as to what would serve their and feed their curiosity and i i, I just i feel I, I just wanted to I just wanted to press that that point because I think we're we're so used to others doing the heavy lifting uh and 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 answers you know at the at the, the flip of a finger and 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 a couple of uh you know uh um, Google searches and and not doing um uh not doing the hard work of saying oh, what did that horse mean and I really want to know why. So I'm just going to open it up a little bit further. And even if the only result is you're baffled by why the horse is there, you're sharing the experience of, of Nebuchadnezzar's close advisors who were equally baffled about why the horse was there. <laughs> sure. As long as it doesn't turn to, oh, I hated that production because I feel that I couldn't figure it out, you know, and I, and, and, and so Yes, thank you for doing all of that hard work because at least that one audience member had the opportunity to be engaged in a conversation with somebody else about their curiosity. And, I, and I, I'm just extrapolating out, how can we all stay curious a little bit longer? Bob, I'm gonna ask you a couple of quick questions. Okay. Um, and maybe we've already covered some of this, but just you know, in, in, in the three syllable question, what inspires you? love love is everything love is the reason why i love people i fall in love with my collaborators and my co-creators i love my friends i love like you can be as spiritual or as religious or metaphysical or not as you want to want to be but i regard it as a miracle that it, on an empirical sense i get to ride in along with this gang of molecules that have somehow become self-aware in a universe of infinite possibilities 
man, I love that. And so <laughs> as far as I can determine and what inspires me is that connection between people. Right. Yeah. And I think that in my life, the, the most important thing is for me to be connected to other people and for me to spread love, experience love, witness love. Um, because as far as I can tell, that's a, you know, that's a really unique thing that 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 humans are are doing and being and and feeling in the universe. So uh, that's that is what inspires me more than anything. Mm. That's great. I had said there were two questions, but the second one now feels moot. I mean, it, it, you've already answered it in in a big way. It was really about what moves you, and you've also, you know, you've also provided context for how you are activating that sense of of what inspires and what moves you. If if you were to and I, I, I'm just circling back to you saying, you know, with the benefit of age, we can look back. Hmm. But if you were to take yourself back to, you know, your early days of having just gotten on with this theater company, uh, whether it was through, you know, false statement or not, it wasn't an indictable offense, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and you And you were back there now looking at you right now. What would the two of you want to start a conversation about? I would want to tell that young man to fear nothing. I would mm -hmm. want to tell that guy to lean into everything, to meet everyone, to be friends, to greet everybody. That guy was so painfully shy and afraid of offending the world or and and or being told that 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 his opinion didn't matter. I, I wish that I could go back and give that young person the gift of, 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 uh, I'll put it politely, not giving a hoot, mm. um, uh, about that and about, and about seeking those connections, you know, mm. and leaning into that. Um, I used to be afraid to order a pizza on the phone because maybe they'd say no, right? So, <laughs> so, you know, what I would share with yeah. that that young bob and what i would share with anybody um is uh is uh, uh don't follow your dreams live your dreams and if you can now assign all of that wonderful magical courage to that young man so that he wasn't afraid to order that pizza or to live his dreams what is he wanting to tell you He wants to tell me that uh, that it's okay to be goofy, mm. that it's okay to be out there, that it's okay to keep the purple hair. <laughs> uh, thank you, Bob, so much for this. Um, and and you know, for for the moment when you said. Um, this stuff is personal and your vulnerability and your willingness to be present in our conversation. It means, it means the world. Uh, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an open book. It's, it's how I have to be. So. Yeah. That's a funny thing about love, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. It's a funny thing about love and it's about self-love. Mm. Uh, you know, at this stage, I'm okay. I'm okay with you knowing who I am and where I came from. And in fact, I hope that anybody who sees it um, can take away something for themselves from it.
Ellipses Thinking is a proud member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It is produced by Jordan Dollar Coltman and Greg Dollar Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. As a resident of Vancouver Island, I wish to acknowledge that I am a visitor on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of the Snonoas and Qualicum people. The first peoples have been here for over 10,000 years. Their ancestors still here with us in the sky, the land, the ocean, and all of the beings that share this sacred place. As a settler, I gratefully embrace the opportunities for growth as integral to my personal journey of collaboration and reconciliation as I learn and further support the possibilities that lay ahead. I remain committed to practicing my craft in a decolonized space.